What is up, guys? It is the Blue Bloods here, and we are coming to the end of our Big Ten and 31 Days theme, man. We finally got to Maryland, and we're joined by Jeff Ehrman, who is a Maryland insider and the founder and publisher of Inside MD Sports for 247 Sports. And I just want to say I appreciate you joining me today. Absolutely, Zach. I appreciate you having me. For sure. But, you know, man, we got to go back to last season. It was a crazy season, especially for the Big Ten just in general. But the Terrapins finished two and three, and they never really got to find their rhythm. I mean, three of their last five games were canceled or postponed due to COVID. So did this season exceed, fall short of, or meet your preseason expectations? That's a good question. It's so hard to answer that because of what you said, you know, with the lack of games, such a small sample size. Um I would say exceeded by a little bit because they were two and three. I mean, most the, the Vegas team total wins for the season, I think, was maybe three and a half or four before non-conference came, games were taken out of the equation and obviously before they lost half the season to COVID. So if you look at that, clearly two wins in five games, and they, they really should have beaten Rutgers also. They kind of uh, gave that one away down the stretch. So I think it was – a you know, a slight overachievement and, you know, a sign that they're, they're, they're progressing as Mike Loxley builds the program. Right. And I mean, you talk about the COVID, I mean, and August 11th, Big Ten Commissioner Kevin Warren makes the decision to postpone the season just a week after he reorganizes the entire schedule, gets a conference-only schedule out there. Was Maryland fighting back behind the scenes with the Nebraska's, the Ohio State's to have a season? And what was your personal reaction to his decision? Yeah, Maryland is, you know, less of a football religious school and area, obviously, and also politically uh, than Nebraska and those other schools. So they weren't pushing. They were just taking taking under advisement whatever the Big Ten said. Um, my reaction at first was a little surprised just because they doubled back on what they originally said. It seemed like a decision you were going to stick with. And a lot of people blasted them, the Big Ten and Kevin Warren, maybe rightly so because of their, you know, the other the other conferences were able to get through it. Obviously, there were a ton of games canceled, so you can't say those conferences had it absolutely right and they had it wrong. But you know, when you're making that big of a decision, it's it's always going to look bad, especially those first few months when they or first few weeks when they weren't playing and everybody else was getting their games in. But like I tell people, that was an unprecedented situation. You know, they didn't handle it great, but again, how many? No one's ever been confronted by that before, literally ever, or at least not in our lifetime. So. You know, it's hard for me to totally hammer them, but, you know, they could have done a better job. Right. I, I feel like that was the consensus um, for most people. But, you know, shifting to more on the field stuff, one of the biggest storylines of the year was Talia Tagovailoa coming for, coming to Maryland from Alabama, you know, following Loxley. And he had some outstanding performances to start the season, but then showed some inconsistencies late. What do you think his potential is moving forward, and what are your expectations for him? He was very interested. I mean, he was a different guy from one game to the next. One game, he looked like a future Heisman contender, and the next game, it was disastrous. So, you know, I think he's closer to that guy, that star, you know, but it was first year starting. He's still figuring it out. He really hadn't played much of any college football. He got a few snaps at Alabama. And, um, you know, I think this year will be interesting because they have Dan Enos now 
running the offense. He's you know known as a quarterback's guru. So and he's a guy that Mike Loxley is very close with. Loxley's thrilled that he's there. He feels like Enos, you know, from their time together in Alabama is kind of an extension of himself. Uh, and you know, in terms of play calling and also quarterback development. So you know, I look for him to improve this season. Whether that means he's one of the best in the Big Ten or just more consistent, we'll see. But I think he's I, I think he's got a lot of promise. Right, and yeah, I mean, he, I mean, ESPN will, like you said, was dubbing him as a future Heisman contender after those first few games. But I want to shift to someone we've already mentioned, Mike, Mike Loxley, entering his third year as the head coach of the Terrapins. And I thought this team showed a lot of promise at times this season compared to 2019. Do you think he's the guy to rebuild this program? And what qualities have you seen makes him the right guy for the job? I really do. You know, if there was one guy for Maryland, especially given the situation with everything that had happened with DJ Durkin and obviously the tragic death of Jordan McNair and all the controversy and investigations and firings after that, there was only one guy who was going to be able to come in and kind of help bring everybody together and heal the program because he'd been there before. He knew a lot of people. He's beloved in the area, uh, extremely popular, very personable. So, you know, if there is a guy to do it, I think he's the guy. He's obviously a great recruiter. They had a top 20 class this past year um, that will be coming in. Some of them have enrolled for the spring, but mostly coming in this fall. Uh, and, you know, I think when you talk about him, he's he's not that traditional football coach who's like that kind of psycho, super intense. He's, he's more of a normal guy. I think players and coaches uh, appreciate that. I think he's, you know, he's upgraded his staff this offseason. So, this this upcoming season will be telling because it's year three. He's got most of his players in now. So you want to see, obviously, some improvement. Nobody's expecting, you know, a, a Big Ten title. But uh, if they could go to a bowl game, I think people would consider that the next step in, in his evolution. Right. And, you know, sp- keeping on Loxley here, I mean, you mentioned how he was pretty much the only guy for the job after the scandal and everything. Do you think that bought him a little bit more leeway? So, you know, I, we've had this big 10 in 31 days and we've got all kind of different temperatures on the coaches like hot seat. If if like how how long do you think he has to rebuild? Do you think Maryland will be patient with him and give him five, six years to fully build up this team? Yeah, I think they absolutely will be patient. He was picked as the guy long-term to get it done. He's the guy, you know, obviously when an athletic director hires somebody, uh, they're a little more closely attached to them. You know, Damon Evans, the athletic director, didn't hire the previous coach, DJ Durkin. That was Kevin Anderson uh, who hired him, who was the previous athletic director. So when it's your guy, you're going to want to give him more time, obviously, because your name is attached to that hire, that success or failure. And it was the program was such a big rebuild, uh, considering all that drama that I mentioned and the lack of talent on the roster. So, yeah, clearly he gets at least five years. I mean, if it, if they were to stumble this year and next year, you know, then, then obviously you're going to be in the hot seat going into your fifth year if you haven't made a bowl game or shown significant improvement. But uh, there's no rush to judgment. Right. And that's good to hear. I mean, we, we see teams, I think, in this era of college football, the, co- the coaches have such a short, I guess, leash on what they can do. And we've seen teams move on really, really fast. But you mentioned this signing class. Um, I mean, top 20, top 25, depending on who you use. And it was headlined by five-star Terrence Lewis out of Miami, who I love as a prospect. 
what what was what were the biggest recruiting needs last cycle and how did Loxley make such a large jump in recruiting impact? Yeah, the clear focus was on the defense. I mean, literally, I think the top eight, the eight, seven or eight highest recruits on their list or commits, I should say, were all on the defensive side. Uh, Terrence Lewis, obviously, number one outside linebacker in the country. They got another linebacker from Florida, Brandon Jennings, who is also a high four-star, one of the top linebackers in the country. So you load up with two two studs there. And then on the defensive line, uh, they got three of the top, I think it was three of the top 20 defensive tackles in the country, along with uh, Damian Robinson on the end, who was one of the best pass rushers in the country. So they really loaded up on the defensive side, which is huge for them. That's been, you know, winning in general has been an issue for them in the Big Ten, but the defense has been the bigger problem, along with quarterback play, of course. But uh, that's what they addressed for the most part. They, did, they got some pieces on offense too, but but they really loaded up on defense. Yeah, and I mean, in this class, did we always kind of we see a recruit in a class kind of become the lead recruiter of the class? How big was it to land someone like Lewis, who's a five star prospect? Some places had him, I believe, top fifteen player. I mean, yeah, how big was that? Did he become kind of the face of the class, the lead recruiter for the other recruits that uh, Maryland landed? He became the biggest name late because he committed on signing day or after signing day, I should say. He really yeah. dragged it out. So he wasn't in there early to be that Pied Piper kind of guy. The funny thing was they had a guy like that, uh, and he de- decommitted eventually and went to Vanderbilt for some reason. Um, <laughs> so, yeah, so there wasn't – Lewis wasn't really that guy. He was a late addition, but he's clearly the guy who got the headlines. And, you know, several of those guys were higher ranked than – you know, anybody they've got. And, well, not anybody. Loxley had a good class last year, too, but um, the number of four stars was unusual for Maryland. Right. And, I mean, he's continued it this year. I want to look ahead to 2022. They're already a top 20 class. They have a bunch of commits, and they're all really talented. Who are the biggest targets for the, for this program? And right now, who's the biggest commit that signed that you think could take that leadership role we just talked about? Uh, A.J. Swan is a quarterback from Georgia who they got, uh, I want to say about a month ago, and literally right after they got his commitment, he blew up at a bunch of camps. Uh, People were raving about him. They love him. Uh, They think he could be the quarterback of the future. So he's right now, you know, with only, I think, seven commits on board, he's the clearly, not clearly, but probably your headliner. Uh, Jaden Sorre is a a high three-star to four-star, another quarterback. From Wise High School, also in Maryland, or not also in Maryland, Swans from Georgia, but um, they clearly need quarterbacks. I mean, as of right now, there's one scholarship quarterback on campus, which is highly unusual. So he has not committed yet, but I fully expect he'll be in the fold soon. And then another guy that they love is uh, Jay Sean Barham from St. Francis, which is a powerhouse in Baltimore. Every year, you know, the top 10 list in Maryland has five or so St. Francis players on it. He's the number one middle linebacker. So if he, you know, if they were able to get him, obviously for Maryland, getting the number one middle linebacker back to back years is unusual territory. And, you know, I think they have a chance. Right. And, you know, what has kind of been, you know, I want, I, I love talking about recruiting. I'm always interested to ask about the recruiting strategy. Loxley, you know, all the, this coaching staff has recruited nationally and has ties. Like you said, I mean, you guys got a quarterback out of Georgia, Lewis was from Florida. How big are those SEC state ties for this staff? Or are they more focused on getting those prospects in Big Ten country? 
Yeah, that's a that's actually a really good question. So, you know, typically you would expect to want to take care of your backyard, which is what they want to do, especially with the amount of talent in the in the DC area. You know, it's one of the best. It's become it used to be a basketball hotbed, and now people about ten years ago recruiters realize there's a lot of football talent there too. So now you have Alabama, Ohio State, all these other schools regularly coming in, and that makes it tough. So that you know they've they've gotten more than they did previously locally. I think they need to you know, put together some more winning seasons before some of those kids who grew up with a little bit of kind of the bandwagon view of looking at a Alabama or these other schools as the only place to go. So they've, long story short, they've done pretty well in their backyard. Damian Robinson, who I mentioned, uh, is, a, is a blue chip defensive end. Several of the defensive linemen they've got locally, but, you know, they've really hit Florida hard. Like I mentioned, those two linebackers they got in this year's freshman class are both from Florida. So that's your two highest rated commits, both from there. Uh, Loxley worked at Florida years ago as an assistant coach, so he has a lot of ties down there. And he's, you know, he's gone out of his way to hire several assistants who also have strong ties in Florida. Uh, Brian Williams, one of his top assistants, his defensive line coach and co-defensive coordinator, uh, was responsible for both of those linebackers and several other other top recruits last year. So he was. Uh, you know, in 24-7 sports, we have our recruiter rankings where it, you know, ranks top recruiters in the country and in conference by points based on the, the commits they got. And he was the number one recruiter in the Big Ten. And I think he ended up number four, maybe nationally, which is, again, pretty high territory for Maryland. Yeah, I mean, that's huge. I mean, especially with some of the recruiting staffs you see at Clemson, Alabama, um, whoever you want to put up there, even Ohio State. But shifting to next season, 2021, there's still a lot of questions on whether fans and what this season is going to look like. But we're all hopeful with the vaccines out and everything. Looking at this team, who are some players that we might not know their names yet, but you think could really shine and have their breakout season? Um, you know, Tonga Bailo is the obvious guy quarterback. You know, Maryland has really struggled to get good quarterback play for a decade plus. So, you know, as important as quarterback play is for everybody, it's even more so for them because they've just struggled with it so much. Uh, Dante Demas, a wide receiver, is, uh, I think, an NFL talent, 6'3", really fast, pretty good hands. I mean, he's he's probably their top guy, but they also have Rakim Jarrett, who was a five-star recruit last year and had some big plays last year. Um, on the defensive side, I would say Tarheeb still was a true freshman last year, cornerback, and looked like a a budding star, you know, not a guy a lot of people know about, but I think he's, I think he's going to be a potential all all conference kind of guy. And then Nick Cross at safety, this is in his third year. He was a blue chip recruit. Also, he's a guy that they beat a lot of schools for several years ago. So, you know, he'll be looked at to be kind of the star of their defense this year. Right. I mean, and you mentioned all those names and it it should ring a bell. Even if you're an average college football fan, you remember all those guys when they committed. It was like, man, how I mean, because they stole um, uh, Rakeem right out of LSU's like hands. Everyone thought he was going to LSU. And my co-host is taking a break right now as an LSU fan. And let's just say he was he was not ready to talk that uh, that day. But oh, they get enough recruits. They don't need to worry about losing one guy. Oh, yeah. I mean, look at the wide receiving core they had. What two years ago? I mean, there were four NFL guys on that receiving core. I, I agree with you there. But looking at the schedule, man, I'm not going to lie. It's an extremely tough schedule. Ohio State, Penn State, Indiana. The non-conference against West Virginia could be brutal with how they looked last year as a defensive unit. 
What do you personally think is the ceiling and or floor for the 2021 team? That's a really good question, Zach. I mean, I, I feel like if they were to get to seven or eight wins, that's that would be a, a very successful season given that schedule. I mean, these, these stories come out, these rankings come out at the beginning of every year. The hardest schedules in the country in Maryland is literally always in that top, like, three, so it's tough. You know, you know Ohio State is going to be a loss until proven differently, you know, until they show they can actually beat them. Uh, you know, Penn State in most years in Michigan. So then it comes down to a lot of those swing games, the Indianas and the Rutgers and, and like you said, West Virginia and the non-conference. So I feel like if, if things go right in those swing games and they pull off an upset, I can see this as a seven or eight win team if, if everything pans out. If not, though, you know, with that schedule, if, if – quarterback struggles or gets injured and, and the defense isn't as good as we think it is. You never know. You, you could be down to three or four wins. There's, it's a very, it's, it's very hard to predict, you know, what will happen. Right. And, you know, just speaking of like the fan base, that, that's your expectations. I mean, I kind of like to see, I, I know Josh paid for two, four, seven does the fan mood trackers that I'll absolutely love. If you had to do one for Maryland, what are the fan expectations for Maryland? Because, I mean, as an Auburn fan, our fans' expectations are way above what they should be. And there's a lot of teams around the country, like Michigan, they still think they're a blue blood program. They're probably not right now. What is, for a Mar- an average Maryland fan, what are their expectations year in and year out? You know, I think they're different, obviously, from those SEC programs because they kind of know, they know. They know their role, as The Rock might have said years ago. They know their role. They, you know, they haven't had a winning season in six years. And it's tough in the Big Ten for them when you're trying to – it's tough for any program to build up that hasn't been good. And it's especially tough in the Big Ten when you're going in the Big Ten East. You know, it's like if you're in the Big Ten West, you might have a little bit better chance to make up ground. So I think the fans are realistic. I think they're – their hopes pretty much match what I said. They would love to get to six wins, get to a bowl game, show that, you know, kind of that proof that, you know, this thing is heading in the right direction and it has potential to get to that. Maybe not that Ohio State level, but say Michigan State where they were, where they were consistently winning eight or nine games and sometimes even more, you know, on that level or Wisconsin or something along those lines down the road, but they just want to see progress. They're not like the, the SEC fans that have experienced that success and expect, you know, 10 wins or bust. Right. Yeah. I mean, you, like, that's good to know. Cause I mean, talking to people from Michigan, experiencing as an Auburn fan, it, it could lead to a lot of problems if your expectations are in the wrong place. But, you know, the last few questions here are more about Maryland itself and, you know, the big 10 in general. And first, you know, we mentioned kind of, you know, the whole Jordan McNair situation, everything. And I don't want to get to any of the negatives, but I want to talk about the positives surrounding it, where you saw the team come together, that community really make an impact. Well, like what is still going on with like McNair's legacy and how, and how did that situation seem to kind of bring that team together? And you saw right after that, the big Texas wins, the runs that Maryland team had, how did the community and the team come together to overcome such a tragedy like that? Yeah, I mean, the team really rallied around it that year. That was, you know, incredible. What they, they didn't quite get to a bowl game, but what they were able to do, obviously, with the Texas win, playing a lot of teams close. They should have beaten Ohio State last that year. They had them. They had Ohio State, you know, dead to rights, and then they missed a, a wide-open guy on a two-point conversion in overtime that would have won it. Uh, so that was amazing. Most of the players who were there are all gone. A lot of them have transferred out or graduated. 
Uh, but the school is still, you know, honoring Jordan McNair's legacy. They renamed the offensive line room after him. You know, they're working with the foundation that his parents started in his name and doing a lot of initiatives with that. And they, they've also settled with the family for, you know, more than $3 million. So the whole thing is, you know, it's kind of reached that healing point, I would say, as a program, but they haven't just forgotten about him. They're still honoring his legacy. Yeah, I mean, I, I believe game day that year did a whole segment about how the team and the community was responding, and it was one of the best, I guess, college game day shorts I've seen in a in a while. But you know, one of the other questions I've had for almost all the guests we've had for ACC last month, Big Ten this month is they these conferences are so deep. We saw Indiana, Minnesota. You've seen Maryland pull upsets over someone like Texas. Why does it? Why do, why don't you think the Big Ten and all these other conferences get the I guess parity respect that the SEC gets, where Bama has to go through all this hard competition, but then the Big Ten ACC is just kind of like, oh, it's Clemson, Ohio State, and nobody else even has a chance. Do you what is the? Do you think that's unfair? Do you think the parity in the Big Ten is a lot more than I guess the average fan is giving it credit for? I don't really think it's unfair because you got to show it. You know, somebody's got to make the make the playoff and win it once in a while. They're not winning national championships, even Ohio State, as good as they are. You know, when you have one team like Ohio State that's a lot of times dominating the rest of the teams in the conference, and then they go to the playoffs and they either lose or get dominated by an SEC team. You know, that's the reality of it. Um, I think you know the, the middle of the Big Ten might be a little bit better than people give it credit for, but. You know, I think you have to prove it. And none of these other teams are, are breaking through and 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 getting to the playoff or competing for a national title. You know, you have some, some obviously really good teams. Northwestern was a huge surprise last year. I think they were really good and maybe even a little underrated. But, you know, otherwise, I think the SEC has proven that it's the best in the country year after year. Right. And that's kind of the, that's kind of like where I'm at. Like, I mean, yeah, it might be the best, but I just don't feel like the Maryland's, the Indiana's, the Northwestern's, the Minnesota's get enough credit. Minnesota was so underrated two years ago in that run that they made. But the last well, question. You also have the ESPN connection too, you know, ESPN and yeah. the SEC. Big Ten's got its own network. So if you watch ESPN, you're going to hear more about the SEC. So that's probably a little bit of it also. Oh, yeah. And I, I feel like if you watch also, if you kind of balance uh, Fox Sports, I feel like does a great job covering Big 12 and Big 10 football as well. Joel Klatt is a guy on there that always brings up the Big 10 team. So, yeah, I guess I, I never really thought about that. No one's mentioned that. But that's actually a really good point, depending on what program you watch. But the last question here is one of my favorites to ask people. And I'm really curious with Maryland and we've had like Boston College on here. College Park, the area Maryland's in, is a big city environment. Like you said, it's not football first there. But what makes Maryland Stadium, this town, unique in terms of a college town, college football town? You know, I would say the proximity to Baltimore and D.C. is the, is the biggest draw for for players. I mean, for recruits, no, you know, they might not have that 100,000 people showing up like Penn State or Nebraska. That's tough to compete against. But those schools are also in the middle of nowhere. So Maryland, you know, that's one thing that they're able to sell is being so close to those areas. And, and the other thing about it in terms of being a football town is if they're good, the fans will show up. You know, these are pro sports fans for the most part. When you look at all these other schools we've talked about, most of them don't have a pro team anywhere near. Maryland's got tons of pro teams everywhere around them. So, so you're competing with them, and you're also – 
dealing with fans who are more of a pro mindset. Like if they're good, I'll show up. Not that it's state you and I've grown up going there all my life. So I have to go to the game no matter how they're doing. But when they win, you know, as they did in the early 2000s, they had three straight 10 win seasons. People, people packed the place. They had to bring in over, you know, overflow seating. So they are willing to come out, but you know, any fan base that's not one of those football religious places like Auburn or LSU or Nebraska, you gotta, you gotta win some games to get them back. Right. And it's always, it always like, I'm always curious about like those type of programs because now I'm from Mobile, Alabama, that we don't have a pro team. The closest one is either you go to New Orleans two and a half hours away yeah. or you got to go to Atlanta and it's Alabama or Auburn. And that's your only two choices, honestly. And so, you know, I, I, that's why I always ask people is how hard it is to get people in the, in the stands. But the consensus seems to be, like you said, if you're winning, they'll come and support. So I'll have to get up to College Park. I heard it's beautiful up there. I want to come to a game. I, I'm not going to also Big Ten stadiums this year if they let fans in. We got fingers crossed on that. But Give man, me a message before you do. Absolutely, man. I definitely will if I get up to Maryland. But I appreciate you coming on, man. I know Maryland just got off an NCAA tournament run in both men's and women's basketball spring practice starting up. So to take a little bit of your time, I really appreciate it. Absolutely, Zach. Thank you for having me. I appreciate it. For sure. So where can our listeners find you? I know you got a Twitter. I know any of the 247 sites are must read. So where can they find you? Uh, so my Twitter is Jeff underscore Ehrman, E-R-M-A-N-N. And my site is InsideMDSports.com. And we cover, if you're a Terps fan, we cover it all, all day, every day. So check us out. For sure, guys. So anything Maryland football, go check that out. Make sure to follow Jeff and stay up to date on all things Maryland. Y'all know where to find us. We got one more Big Ten in 31 days coming, guys. We're going to wrap up the month with Iowa. But for myself, for Jeff, and for the Blue Bloods, guys, we are out. <laughs>